Friends, here we are. We're back in action. Hard times on film. How's it going, Big Ray? It's going well. It's going well. How are you, Nick? Yeah, I'm pretty good, man. You know, I'm ready for this uh, this pandemic to clear off, you know, but I'm um, having a great time <laughs> yeah. watching Bronson movies while I'm hunkered down. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's given us uh, the time to get this thing together finally. We've been talking about it for a long time. Yeah, and I I think about it sometimes. Like, would Bronson wear a mask? Would he not wear a mask? Is his mustache enough of a filter? <laughs> I think I think a vi- I think a virus would like it wouldn't even have to sort of encounter his mustache. He it would get one look at Bronson, and probably just hits hits somebody else. He flex yeah. it off for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about a movie that uh, I saw many, many years ago. And I, I think I mentioned this in one of our last uh, episodes there that I had a post. I had this poster for this movie on my wall as a kid, having not even seen it. But yeah. I just loved how Bronson looked in the poster. And it looks so it looks so badass, you know. So we're going to talk about uh, the evil that men do today. Yes. So this is a movie that uh, debuted in 1984. Uh, it was directed by Jay Lee Thompson. And this is the fifth of nine collaborations between Bronson and, and Thompson. Uh, Thompson's a you know, great director. He, he has uh, you yeah. know, a reputation of having worked on some of Bronson's sleazier movies, but uh, he's an excellent director. And this film is a great example of his mastery of, of action. You know, and also of I think of of morality. He's a really interesting guy when it comes to making movies that are controversial. Um, it cost about four point six million dollars, but it made over thirteen million. So it's a it's a winning combination here. It's the only non. This is interesting. It's the only non-canon group movie that Bronson made between '82 and the end of the '80s. Well, in some ways, this is a holdover from the previous period it was sort of a contractual thing where he had one picture left in a three picture deal with the, with the previous company. And he had done love and bullets and borderline. I think it, it does fit in in some ways with the Canon movies, but it has its own feel as well. It's got one foot in those other, those other two movies kind of at the end of the seventies too. Yeah. And you know, he's about 62 years old in this, in this movie. Uh, he still looks fantastic. He looks like he's extremely fit and ready to, to achieve his goals, uh, which in this movie, are, he's a, <laughs> yeah. he's a paid killer, you know, but yeah, so that's basically the movie. That's, that's the context. He does it just after uh, 10 to midnight and just before death wish three. And I remember seeing death wish three as a kid, uh, in like junior high and, um, yeah, I'm glad I didn't see Evil That Men Do until a bit later. Yes. It was interesting to read some some of the writings about this film. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our man, Paul Talbot, again, for his amazing uh, chronicling of Bronson's work here in Bronson's Loose Again, which uh, is a follow-up to his first book, Bronson's Loose. Pick that up wherever fine books are uh, sold. If you're a fan of Bronson or of Jill Ireland, give it give it a shot. And uh, I like yeah. this I like this one a lot because the chapter on uh, the evil that men do is pretty detailed, and it goes into some some character stuff about Bronson, some backstory about who he is, how he behaves himself that I find fascinating. So yeah, have a look at that. But that's informed some of our research for this for this episode. So we'll get right into it. I guess we'll start what with the the film in 60 seconds there, Ray? Yeah. And uh, you're going to give us the rundown this time. Uh, So for the uninitiated, for the people who haven't seen the movie or haven't seen the movie lately, uh, you're going to give us every spoiler that we need in order to uh, 
think about and talk about uh, the evil that men do. So front to back, the whole thing, everything in 60 seconds. Here we go. Just going to start the timer. One, two, the movie starts. We see the black hooded figure of a freelance murderer known as the doctor lecturing a group of South American military officers on the methodology of torture. His assistants drag in a journalist named George, who is stripped naked, fitted with electrodes, and gruesomely tortured to death, allegedly for having written an expose on the doctor's activities. Unfortunately for the doctor, George happened to be the personal friend of retired assassin Holland, played by Charles Bronson. Bronson. After some coaxing, Bronson. Holland Bronson. agrees to come out of his peaceful retirement in the Cayman Islands to avenge George's death. Holland enters Guatemala with fake passports, taking along George's widow and daughter to pass his adventure-seeking tourists. After some quick surveillance, Holland sets to work killing off the doctor's world-class security people one after another in memorable fashion. He then kidnaps the doctor's sister and uses her as bait to lure the doctor to his eventual death. After an excellent car chase scene, a showdown with another professional killer, some unexpected twists, and a strange and violent death for the doctor at the hands of dozens of his own victims, the ending sees Holland back, strolling on the beach in the Caymans, but this time with George's wife and daughter. We can only imagine that it's happiness for everyone ever after. The end. How'd you do? You know, about 57 seconds, man. Oh, nice. Well done. Thanks, Ray. Well done. I think you hit pretty much everything. Everything. There's a couple moments that I can't can't wait to discuss that you might have edited out for the sake of brevity. That was one paragraph, and I had it was about two and a half paragraphs when I wrote it, so I had to really slice out a lot of the action. But we'll get to the action in a few minutes for sure. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? I want to ask in this movie, there's kind of two Bronson entrances. Yes. And I like both of them. Both of them are quite striking. So why don't you take one? I'll take the other. <laughs> well, the first, the Bronson uh, pre-entrance, th- there's this sort of James Bond moment at the start of the movie. In, but instead of the gun barrel and, you know, turning and shooting, we get this black and white image of Bronson enters the frame and his name appears on the screen. Charles Bronson and then he proceeds to hurl hurl a knife in slow motion and so he's introduced to us sort of in character but mostly as Charles Bronson and that's the first thing you you see in the movie it it really sort of announces if there was any doubt as to what you were getting yourself into this is a Charles Bronson movie he's hurling a knife at someone get ready totally then there's this whole scene that I described with the doctor lecturing and, and uh, torturing that man to death. And, and then it cuts over to Bronson's actual entrance for the movie. Like when he, when his character is revealed for the first time and it's, it's him like with a loose shirt and like no shoe, mm-hmm. he's strolling on the beach and he's talking to a, uh, talking to a fish and he's looking really uh, relaxed and he's exuding this confident control his first interaction with, with anybody is some fella rides up in a boat. It's a guy that he knows and he's dropping off some other fella that he doesn't know, but he's, he's kind of resistant. He's, yeah, no, you, you leave him down there. I'll go see him down there. You know? And he's, uh, he's got the world at arm's length, which I think is really pretty interesting kind of metaphor for, for the whole movie in a way. But yeah, so that's, that's Bronson's entrance. Yeah, we find out a little bit later some more about his life. He describes later on in the movie the, the way in which he lives. He likes to read late into the evening by natural light. Shower with rainwater. Yeah. He, he, uh, yeah, he's living this absolutely tranquil existence with no need for money or anything. I call, in my notes, I had written, I had called this Island Bronson. 
like yeah he's got we'll talk about maybe when we talk about the fashion we'll talk about it a bit more but he's extremely laid back this is like the one of the chillest bronson appearances that we see probably in all of his movies you know that's funny you say that too because in some ways like there's this whole facade of of him being a tourist in guatemala uh he's an adventure tourist with his with his weird swinging family right but he he is extremely relaxed yeah. through the whole movie yeah you know, there isn't a moment in the movie where he really is feeling panicked at the very end you know maybe the very very end when he's he's trying to uh, convince the doctor that he still has the doctor's sister he's a little bit tense then yeah that's about it yeah very relaxed he he often he very um rarely has a collar on his shirt he's that relaxed <laughs> again yeah 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 um well that brings us to sort of the character so that's sort of how bronson appears but so we're introduced to holland and who so who is this guy you mentioned a little bit about him in the in the rundown but how would you describe the character of holland well, I think what you said earlier is really spot on. And that's that this is the period in Bronson's career when a lot of the time he's basically playing Charles Bronson and not necessarily who he really is at heart, but certainly he's become an actor who is somewhat typecast, but in this incredible role of uh, basically he's Paul, in this movie, he's Paul Kersey from the Death Wish series crossed with someone like the mechanic, right? His, his assassin character from the early 70s. He's got this strong moral energy, though. You know, he's great with children. He never shows his anger. He never doesn't chase money anymore. He values all that peace. There's talk of him spending his whole day looking for Latin American music. Uh, He's very polite, but he's also, he's got a lot of self-determination. He has incredible skills as a killer. Like, there's not a second in this movie where he's not completely able to overtake his his opposition. Uh, He's never out of control. He's always a step ahead. Um, he doesn't think about his work as problematic. He's not a cruel person, but yeah, the opposition in this film are never a challenge for him at any point. So yeah, it's basically just, it's just a confidence. It's a thriller of watching Bronson just completely annihilate every obstacle in his path. Yeah. I, it's funny that you say yeah, he had settled into playing himself. And, and when you read reviews, there's lots of people that are critical of that. Like, Oh, here's Bronson playing himself again. But I think there is a little difference in this one. Bronson always comes across as being kind of dispassionate. Maybe that's being charitable. I don't know. I love Bronson, so I don't think so. But people will, you know, you hear people call him wooden or whatever, like as though he's just dispassionate in his acting. But I think this character goes even beyond that. Like this character is completely removed and and dispassionate over and above it just being you know the byproduct of Bronson playing him I think that is part of his character and it comes out in some of the lines and how he acts uh, interacts with other people yeah that's a great point I also would add to that that there's a little more humor in his character in this film than you'd see in others like there's some great scenes and he has some he delivers some lines in this movie that are pretty second to none most striking being obviously when he picks up the doctor's right hand communications specialist in the bar as a swinger with his with his fake wife right that's right you know nancy and me we come from a small town up in nebraska and we always have to go someplace else for excitement of a variety you know me and nancy we've been into a lot of things 
We've learned tricks you wouldn't believe. We've been into things like wife swap ways. Yeah, ultimately, I will argue, though, that it is basically Paul Kersey cross with the mechanic with a little bit of um, nuance thrown in for good. Yeah, measure. although we don't we don't you mention he's extremely skilled. Uh, we see him throw knives. We see him, you know, like take all sorts of guys down. But we don't get any indication of why. Like, you know how in movies there's always that throwaway lines like, oh, he's he's ex special forces. Yeah, like Death Hunt. He's like, the guy. Yeah. Special forces from World War One, a Canadian yeah. special force. <laughs> but in every other movie, too, like it's like, oh, we have this this super skilled guy that we're going to construct a bunch of fight seats around. How do we explain away his insane ability? Well, we'll just have a throwaway exposition line. It's like. Oh, he's let's look in his file. He's ex-military, but we don't get any. We don't know why Holland. At least I didn't. Is there anything in there that indicates why this guy is so good at being a killer? No, it's just that he's 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 sixty something at this point, yeah. and there's there's no need to explain it. No. And again, I think it it does flirt with that whole crossover to his identity as a, as an actor at this point. So people yeah. are just expecting there's, that now. I guess there's no need to explain. <laughs> that's a waste. That's a wasted line. Yeah, and I have to say, yeah. you know, I've I've said this in a couple of our episodes, but I really do appreciate how economical. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the um, lines are the dialogue is is spare in this movie and i think it's actually quite good like there's some pretty bad acting but there's some great lines that are just very very simple and they move things along at a super good pace so i i really appreciated that but listen yeah. i'm getting ahead of myself and i'm really excited to hear more about what kind of a facial hair situation are we are we talking about with uh, the evil that men do we're into 80s Bronson, like we say. So we, it is definitely a wide stash and, and, uh, and a considerable head of hair too. Big time thick. Yeah. Right. So, and that's a look that he would rock for that whole decade. I don't think we see him again without a stash until like Indian runner, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you're right. He's looking good. And I think it fits his laid back island lifestyle. Yeah. I think we get a couple of classic Bronson styles, actually. We get this sort of linen-shirted, loose-panted Bronson on the beach. And it's not the only time we'll see him like this. I think like when we look at uh, like Cabo Blanco, it's going to be an- there'll be some more Island Bronson. So it's not like the only time that he opens up a few buttons and uh, enjoys the sunshine. Uh, but there's another specific look in this movie that jumped out at me that I wanted to ask you about. And if you've ever thought of, I think airport Bronson, um, no, but we can talk about that one too. Well, <laughs> that one's pretty, pretty great. <laughs> describe, what, well, what did you see in, in, uh, his style at the airport? Well, the, I, the scene with him and, uh, and the, his, his fake family in the car, the rental car, being stopped by the police and he presents their passports and he's got the darkest shades. Like, I don't know if you've ever, ever <laughs> dealt with any sort of border security, any, in any country, but they'll say, please remove your shades. So I can look at it's your, your shades. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, fuck that, man. I'm keeping my shades on. <laughs> and he looks, he's wearing like motorcycle cop shades. Yeah. Like wrap around like... big, thick. They look fantastic. They're clearly Italian-made oh. shades. He's got this incredible, very crisp blue, kind of powdery blue suit on. Well, I think it's a white suit with a sort of 
a blue pinstripe to it yes. if i'm not mistaken yeah. yeah it's got some blue i mean i don't know what what the quality of the of the version you watch but on, on my, uh, my <laughs> it was bleeding a little bit my middle eastern uh dub <laughs> version that i i had to find on youtube was uh it was fairly blue but anyway so what was the other memorable uh, outfit that you that you were struck yeah the one that really jumped out to me is the sort of prototypical maybe quintessential is better the quintessential early gray sweatshirt like the athletic sweatshirt and i had seen it many times before and but it didn't occur to me until watching this movie that this is something we see bronson infrequently like there are a number of movies where he wears one of these like these logo free like 1980 i don't know hanes whatever it is <laughs> like el elastic at the wrist and waist gray uh workout uh sweatshirt yeah what did you think of that that's a really good call absolutely there's been a number of movies like i'm pretty sure he wears one of those as paul kersey on in a couple of the death wish um yeah certainly in number two he's wearing one of the, number three for sure he has and, one of those. Fi and five as well yeah there's a scene call. in five of him i believe he's jogging and he's wearing one of these too We'll have to we'll have to fact check that. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. as we make our way through these movies, I think it's something that we should look for. But the gray athletic uh, sweatshirt is definitely he looks great in it. it you're right. And uh, here's a question for you. Um, when you see Bronson in a gray sweatshirt like that, are you tempted yourself? And this is a, I'm being sincere. Like, do you find yourself watching yeah. Bronson movies? And like, because I do, I'll find myself going, Man, yeah. Bronson looks great in that <laughs> sweater. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to go pick one up, you know. And also this and all yeah, and also this the style of it, like the fact that like I don't even know where you would find one. I think you might have to go to like a screen printing place and ask them to not put anything on it. Yeah. Like to even find one of those. I don't even I don't think you would find one off the rack anywhere that no logo. You know what? It's often if you watch like old cop shows. Like if you watch TJ Hooker or something and yes. they're like, they're, they're training in the field or in the gym. Everybody's wearing one of these. I was just going to say yeah. that. Yeah. You know what, too? That reminds me of an episode that I remember of the greatest American hero. I'll never forget it. There was this uh, scene where the bad guys in the movie all were bald guys who were kind of built and wore black t-shirts and wore shades. And I was like, Whoa, that's a, that's incredible. Like, you know, I was eight years old and it, struck me as being pretty cool but since then like i literally own about 25 black t-shirts and i'm pretty sure it's because of that episode of, of the greatest american hero so guarantee you bump in the nick on the street in the next six weeks i'll be rocking one of those bronson sweaters thanks a lot for that all right well if you find any get two before we moved on from like the fashion and the style, I wanted to give a shout out to another character, which we don't always do. Usually we're focused on, on Bronson, but I really want to give a shout out to um, Randolph uh, in his Robin's egg blue turtleneck. Yeah. That left off the screen. And I think it's such a funny choice for that character. And it really just makes that character when he's in the bar in that light, blue turtleneck and he's this huge man it really like i really brought a smile to my face i really loved that yeah so i'm just looking up 
uh, the wardrobe person on the internet here while we're talking and it's someone named Poppy Cannon Reese. And you'll, you'll love this Ray because you're a big Chuck Norris fan. She also did the wardrobe for Firewalker with Chuck Norris and Lou Gossett Jr. So I think, yeah, we should both maybe, maybe rewatch that with fresh eyes, knowing there's that connection and style between uh, it and the evil that men do. Yeah. This brings me maybe to us delving into the substance of the movie. So every episode we, we share what we think of as our big idea behind the movie. The substance, substance, according to Nick and Ray. All right, so this movie was not without its controversy when it was first released. And even now, I've seen it many times. And I have to say, the first 10 minutes of this film are pretty difficult in some ways. Like all the torture at the beginning, it's, it's so gruesome. And then there's all these testimonials on tape that Bronson's listening to from people who had uh, been either tortured themselves or lost loved ones who were tortured and murdered by the doctor. Like it's pretty sickening stuff. And for a long time, you know, when I'd watch this movie, I, I forget about it and then realize, oh yeah, God, I got to watch this again. You know, this is so violent and gratuitous, but the more I watch it, the more I realize that the whole movie to me is an exercise in playing with the audience's sensibilities, particularly around how we measure good and evil, and then whether or not we, we see the use of violence as justifiable under certain circumstances. So this is my big idea. And I think the Rihanna character is central to it. I really found her frustrating the first few times I'd seen this movie. Yeah, She's kind of off-putting in terms of a romantic lead for Bronson. They never really have a spark. She's always flip-flopping between her disgust of Bronson's work as a killer, but then her insistence on being part of the revenge narrative. At first, that was really frustrating, and I, and I thought that whole character was a poor choice as a plot device. But now I realize that she's actually personifying the moral contradiction that's at the heart of this story. You know, our own moral stance, the way we judge good and evil... It's also fully on display within Bronson's character. So he's like really polite. He's great with Rihanna's daughter. He's funny. But then he's also this ruthless, talented killer. He's the action hero in, a, in our movie. So uh, it makes sense that we're, we're cheering for him the whole time. And he's Bronson, right? So, but he does spend the entire movie hunting and killing people. So there's, uh, there is some moral ambiguity here that messes with the audience, whether we are thinking about it or not. In some ways, the movie is also a real mirror between Bronson and the doctor. And the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that this was super intentional. You know, each are experts in the use of violence. But Moloch is such an extreme and repulsive character that it's not a stretch for us to want to see him brought to justice of some kind. Uh, but Bronson's equally lawless. Like, he's not morally rudderless. But then again, the doctor lives by a code, too. Like, he describes at one point to the Guatemalan general that there's only the security of the state and then those who would undermine it. So he, he sees himself as an important tool in, in retaining the stability of nations. Bronson, though, is also out killing people for a living, and he sees himself as a defender of freedom, if not his own version of civility. So there's this really strange parallel between the two. And, uh, and you know, the best example of that is that this is unheard of, but both characters have a scene in this movie one is grabbing someone by the nuts and twisting, and the other one is uh, attaching electrodes to the person's nuts and, <laughs> and torturing the guy. So at first I thought that was quite subtle, but now I'm realizing it's actually pretty obvious parallel between the good guy and the bad guy. Obviously, I see a huge difference between the two of them, but there's enough shared ground here to mess with you when you watch it. 
another just final thing that I, I think is important here is that to think about it in the context of history. Um, it's American-made, it's pro-democracy, it's portraying torture as evil. But then this is also the early 80s, and America itself spent millions and millions of dollars in their foreign policy supporting Operation Condor, which propped up military dictatorships all over the world through hiring people like the doctor to inflict brutal violence on left-wing opposition. I'd love to hear from the filmmakers and from the writer of that book, like what the thinking was at the time. I don't know if the filmmakers would be supportive of the American push to use evil to prop up like-minded regimes. And I think that the title of the movie is the best key to that. So the evil that men do is a part of a quote from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And the full quote is, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. That's kind of saying that Bronson's use of methods that may seem evil, they actually make a lasting impact on the fight for civility and freedom. So, you know, there is a suggestion, too, that what the doctor is doing through Operation Condor is, is similar. There's an argument, I'm sure, that some people have made that propping up these regimes is, is stabilizing world trade and the freedom of the market, which I personally disagree with. But I could see that, you know, there is some moral argument to be made for it. Yeah, so there you go, Ray. That's uh, that's my big idea for the evil that men do. Yeah, I uh, well, I wholeheartedly agree. It's actually surprising how close our big ideas are. Actually, we're really on the same wavelength with this one. I really enjoyed this too. Like, if you read the reviews, and we'll get to some of the reviews, people don't really separate this movie out from a lot of the other ones he made at the time. But I do really think there's some difference in this regard. And the movie does explore some interesting stuff. Uh, and whether that comes from the original source material or the second writer added it or how much Jay Lee might have influenced or, or whoever else, I don't know. But but there's some stuff going on in this movie for sure. It's not just a bunch of shock value killings. I mean, it's also that, but there, there's a bunch of other stuff going on too. And I also really focused on the title. The title was the thing that kind of brought it together for me. I had some of those same quotes written down about standing outside the, what is it, the moral of... Uh, the doctor stands outside the moral laws of civilized people. Yeah. And so Moloch does that. And Bronson also does that, right? And the guy in the bar that Bronson is talking about in the scene you referenced, like, there's all these men that do or are capable of doing evil things, are capable of using violence to accomplish their ends, and to also be used to do violence at the behest of other people. And so the movie gives us these people, these two sides of the coin. Here's people who are capable of, of killing. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of funny as Rihanna sticks around through the movie and doesn't leave like you talked about. She get, um, there's at least three times where she says, you're not going to kill him, are you? And Bronson will say, like, well, what do you think we're here for? He, they have this kind of funny back and forth where she's continually shocked that he's actually going to do these violent things. Or in the case of Randolph, he has him strung up in the shower. He's like, don't come in here. And then she comes in and, she, and she's all terrified by what she's seen. And he's, he's kind of like, what, we're going to bring principles into this now? 
it really reminded me of the whole famous uh, A Few Good Men line. You know, you can't handle the truth. Almost, almost like you don't want to know what needs to be done for you to keep living your, your safe existence. Like you don't want to be aware of the evil that men are out there doing sometimes for you depending on the situation like so so we have both these groups and they both need like a a tip of the spear and one is Moloch and one is one is holland yeah that's a great that's a great analysis i think and i love how they've managed to make you absolutely convinced that Moloch must die like no one's watching this movie thinking like oh they really should really just arrest him and 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 put him in prison like even someone like me i'm completely against capital punishment i have to admit but in this movie you want this guy dead he's just an awful terrible creature on this planet that should not be allowed to continue right yeah absolutely like he's completely reprehensible in every way he's like infinitely killable this guy but then also he, they give him this incredible security where nobody can get to him. So even if you did think you will, you should catch him and put him away, they kind of take that option off the table and they leave you as the viewer with the only thing that's possible is to have a lone, also skilled, um, violent man who can, who can somehow get to him. Who can harness violence for good. Right. Yeah. I love, I love the one line too, that Bronson says to Rihanna where she's disgusted by him and she questions him about his job, right. About his profession. And he says, look, I don't don't see this the way you see this. Yeah. I I wrote that down because it was actually, I didn't mention it. It was actually that jumped out at me as sort of the central line of the whole movie. He doesn't give any explanation either, which I think is brilliant. And she's like, don't you, doesn't this ever get to you? Don't you ever like, you know, feel it? And he's just like, I don't think about it the way you think about it. Exactly. It's an end, end scene. And, and I, I just loved, I loved that part. I also though would say that on the parallel end of this, this movie is an exceptional action movie. There's literally guys getting blown up. There's incredible car chase. It's a decent car chase scene. Guy gets thrown out a window at the end of a uh, with a hose fire hose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's just just for a minute talk about a few of the action scenes because there are some just incredible. Yeah, ones. the one by far I think that's the most exceptional is is the bar scene. So he grabs this huge creep <laughs> by the nuts and and then chokes him yeah. out with his other foot while he twists the guy's wang. <laughs> does he does he choke does he choke the guy out like i because i I watched this a couple of times and i almost got the impression that he he twists the guy's package so ferociously that he actually passes out that it wasn't like he isn't asphyxiated by his boot but he inflicts such intense pain on him that the guy just expires that's sort of that's how i prefer to watch it well, you know, I, I think you could pick your pick your uh, poison there for sure. Bronson, no doubt that he he could have finished the guy off on either end. So yeah, I think there was the I think it was the combination of his foot on the guy's throat and him twisting his yeah. his package. <laughs> I was just laughing all through this. In my notes, I'd written Jay Lee goes all in on the dick twist. Hats off! <laughs> like it's such a fantastic scene as a director he cuts back to it like you can imagine them in the editing room you know cut 
cut back to him twisting it again. One one more time. He cuts back to it. I think it's four <laughs> times. Two fists. It's a prolonged. Uh, it's a prolonged moment, and I've never seen it in any other movie. The other thing about it, though, that I loved is uh, Randolph's reaction. Like watching. Oh my Randolph goodness! Comes so, out of the back. Yeah. He throws those two women he's with aside and comes yeah. running up with a huge smile on his face. Just he loves it every second of yeah. this. You know, in his blue turtleneck. And everybody around is thrilled with it. You know, they're so stoked. And then the guys, I think he's, is he dead? Like they, he's, his eyes are open. I don't, I, I don't think he's dead. I guess. I don't think anything happens that, ki- that kills him. Well, they drag him but off. But I don't think he'll, I don't think he'll ever be the same. <laughs> he may not father any more children. After. No, it's, it really is. It really is one for the ages. <laughs> like if people were to ask me, what is the, what is the, one of the all time takeouts in a movie where like it's got to be up there the setup too is great because bronson is very much like i i think they intentionally made him look more his age in this scene he's at the bar getting some beers he walks back he goes well he's a lot smaller than that guy he looks pretty Mm -hmm. old old right here in this scene and then bang he just delivers that line about about her mortality and then just lays waste to this guy so that's an incredible scene another action scene though that is really quite awesome the doctor hires out this professional hitman the u.s embassy i think pays for this guy to come in from america yeah they track bronson's character down at this little tiny bar in guatemala in some town where where all the people who live in the town have been brutalized by the doctor and uh, yeah so like, it seems like most of this country has been brutalized by this doctor like how yeah how long has the doctor been training in this one country? Like, it seems like there are so many, so <laughs> many of his, of his victims. Like, I'm just, how many classes are there in his, in the seminar that he's putting on? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think he must be working uh, beyond the bounds of his collective <laughs> agreement here. He's, he really loves his job. Um. Anyway, the, that, the scene with him in the bar when he's sitting there having a beer. And then yeah. this, the hitman shows up with the, the guy from the embassy. Yeah, with him just sitting at the table, just calm as anything, too. Yeah, and John Glover, too, the guy who plays the, the U.S. embassy guy. He plays a good kind of smarmy guy. He's in a few movies around this time, too. My clients go in to go 200 grand tops. What? You expect me to rent? We're talking serious business. Shut up, asshole. It's not money you want, is it, Holland? You're too smart for the job, Janelle. I love J. Lee Thompson now. You know, at first I always associated him with some of Bronson's lower films, but having seen some of his movies recently, I realized, wow, he's an exceptional uh, director for action movies. He's wearing a bulletproof vest. His use of pacing and tension and, you know, non-dialogue scenes to move a film forward and create meaning where there maybe wasn't any meaning. Like, I think he's really great. So I've really come around on J. Lee Thompson. I agree. There's a couple moments that stood out to me as being just really sort of masterly. 
Um, and he directed this thing on the fly, right? Like he's brought in at the 11th hour because the previous director doesn't work out and he's barely even familiar with the script and he just starts filming the next day. So this movie is like, he's just making it up as he goes along and there's still some great stuff in it. There's a couple of moments where I was surprised, like the car chase and then when the car chase is over and then they find that his sister's been killed in the trunk. I thought that was actually a pretty cool twist. And I probably should have seen that coming a mile away. I don't know, but I think it's just directed pretty well and it's pulled off. And same with the, like the most cliche thing in the movie is them showing up at the end with Rihanna's daughter. Like it's going to happen in every movie. But at the same time, when they reveal that they've got her, I was like, oh, damn. You know, like I actually what like I'm like, how was I surprised by that? It's in literally every movie ever. You know, I've so seen this I, movie 15 times and I still feel alarmed that they have her in the front seat yeah, of the car. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just really well done. He does a great I think he does a great job with this one. So just looking at some of the other actors in the film though that are kind of noteworthy. Teresa Saldana plays Rihanna. She was in Raging Bull. She did a lot of TV shows. Her personal life is pretty interesting too. And, you know, she was a victim of like this horrible stabbing incident not that long before this movie happened. And there was some talk of her wanting to do this movie because of the idea of reclaiming her own confidence. And that's interesting, but. This is clearly the Jill Ireland part. Like when you watch this movie, you're like, what, wait, that's, that's not, that's not played by Jill Ireland. Cause it, it almost seems like it's written for for her and when you do read about the movie it was intended for her and then jill suggested that some someone else do it um but i think she does a i think she does a really good job i like them together I, um bronson's no stranger to like what is it may december romances in his movies sometimes and so he was sick he was like 61 and she was 30 he doesn't really look 61 and I don't think she really looks 30. Then that's not in a, not some bad way. I don't know, but I think they go, they, I think they work together. I don't know. I like Bronson and her together in the movie. I think they make a good team. I don't disagree with that. I guess part of me too, I, I factor her performance in with that of the little girl who played her daughter. And I think that's a mistake because so many of the scenes that she's in, are just so so badly done like the daughter she really takes you out of the movie a few times where it's like wow that's some bad that's a bad actor right there anyway but teresa Saldana is bashing the, with the girls like a tan don't give her any like lines terrible. you know they didn't need to that was the one that was a Fair flop. Enough. that's a flop yeah. um I don't need to go into too much detail, but there were some noteworthy folks. Jo Jose Ferrer won the ask, uh, Oscar for Cyrano de Bergerac. He's in Lawrence of Arabia and Dune. Lot, like oh, yeah, he's a much respected yeah, actor. John Glover, again, we talked about already. Rene Enriquez is, is Ray from Hill Street Blues. That's how I always knew him. One person that I've discovered through uh, a bit of research is Joe Seneca plays Santiago, who's basically just the guy who brings... Um, uh, Ferrara over on the boat to Bronson's King Island. He was in like Malcolm X, A Time to Kill, uh, Mo Better Blues. He was in he was in Crossroads. He played a he was one of the head, leads in Crossroads. He was in The Verdict. Oh, really? Yeah, he's in so many movies, and and that's something I found really surprising. 
I had written down, oh, there wasn't that many A-list actors in this movie. But then I realized he's in this for like a second. I know. But then if you if you look at the the more incidental actors that they had in this film, a lot of them were were Mexican and they have an incredible stat list of films and, and TV shows, like incredible. Uh, but there are others who who weren't necessarily location actors either. Like Roger Cudney is someone who was in, um, he plays the other hitman, uh, Cannell, and he's in Total Recall, he's in License to Kill, he's in Fast Food Nation. Anyway, there's lots of, of uh, crossover too with Bronson. Enrique Lucero, who plays the military, the Guatemalan military general, was uh, also in uh, Guns for San Sebastian with Bronson. And finally, Conrad Houle, who plays the thug at the airport, who gets gunned down for trying to clear security on his own. Yeah, he was also in, in Cable Blanco. You know, I think it's it did add a lot. Like all those characters were believable and interesting. You know, I'm thinking about the Guatemalan military general. That guy has a stat list that's incredible, and he's just in it for 30 seconds, delivers a few lines. But he's a, he's a a pretty solid character for the amount of dialogue that he has. So anyway, that's my take on the co-stars create, creation and production. And the last quick note is that again, Jill Ireland is a is a co-producer in this movie, which is uh, was a first for her, and she did it a couple times in in the 80s with Bronson's movies. I think one other thing, like just related to the level of actors they were able to get, I think there's there's more money on display in this movie than in some of his other 80s movies. Uh, like even in just the location, the fact that it was, it's, I think it's all shot in Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. There's some pretty striking exteriors. All the interiors are done in real homes and stuff. Like there's no crappy soundstage rooms that they're ever in in this movie like it really lends it a level of quality in watching it over you know some some of the other ones he made around the same time there you're right there is an investment in this movie that really brings it up a notch as well so both that and the uh the acting i think is uh, worth the price of admission how about the music? We didn't really touch on that, but I know that you often take a closer listen than I do to to who made the music and, and what the the impact is. Well, the music for this uh, movie was done by Ken Thorne, and he's a guy who had done lots of TV. As with a lot of Bronson's 80s movies, it's often scored by somebody that did a lot of TV work because there wasn't a ton of money. Although this comes along at probably the peak of Ken Thorne's career, 80. 384 is probably the high point. If you look at this guy's IMDb, he's going to do a few movies that are decent sized movies. He does this one. He does Superman three. Um, so, you know, getting to play around with John Williams, famous themes and stuff. And he'll also do uh, Lassiter with Tom Selleck. I'm sure you can remember that uh, VHS box pretty well. That great painting of Sal- Selleck's face smoking a cigarette. Yes. So he, he's got a few pretty big movies in a row, and then he kind of fades back into a lot of TV work. But I actually really like the score for this movie. I really, I thought the, the music in this movie is really effective. This music never got a release. Like, it didn't come out on an album. There's been no re-releases. There often is. So the only way to listen to it is really in the context of the movie. There's a lot of great little rhythms going on all throughout, really suspenseful, often a lot of like there's sort of a low suspenseful rumbling and then he'll bring in some drums and some interesting uh, melodies all throughout. Some really good stuff, not just kind of throwaway incidental, oh, this sounds like TV music, but I wish there was 
a release of this one. I would, I'd like to listen to it. Well, there was a release of the, of the associated book. And so maybe it's time for us to uh, get into Bronson's book corner. You're about to be backed into Bronson's book corner. <laughs> Absolutely. Sure thing. So uh, you had mentioned the guy who adapted the screenplay, but he's adapting it from a book, comes out in 1978 of the same name, The Evil That Men Do, a novel by a guy named R. Lance Hill, who had published one novel earlier, which had also been optioned for movies a bunch of times, but no one ever made it into a movie. So it was a pretty recent book when it got turned into a movie. And um, I think it was Bronson's agent who brought it to him who had read it and thought this would be a good vehicle for him and i know there was some controversy over like the writing credit and sort of who who deserved credit for the final thing but the movie does really pretty closely follow the book so it doesn't it doesn't deviate a lot there are some things that are condensed and some stuff that's taken out some characters but for the most part all the same major beats throughout happen. Uh, the beginning uh, is exactly the same. Uh, the attempt on, on Moloch's life and then, and then Holland on the beach and Quasimodo the fish that he's talking to and on and on and on and on. It's really similar. Yeah, it's often just scaled down in the movie. So for example, a great example is in the movie, they go to that cockfight, right? Uh, in the book, it's a bullfight. So you can imagine they're scaling it down for budgetary reasons, probably more than anything. They're not going to fill a bullfight arena for the sake of the movie. Um, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, I, it's, it's actually a real centerpiece of the novel is this bullfight scene. And they're, they're watching the bullfight. And, uh, you know, there's this connection kind of between Holland and what's going on. And as I was reading it, I'm like, this is so Bronson. Because many times in these movies, we see Bronson be linked to an animal of some sort. The white buffalo in White Buffalo, and you've got, you know, yeah, the dog in Death Hunt and the bear in Hard Times. So people love to link Bronson and maybe his animal presence somehow with, with an animal in the movie. And if they would have done this bullfight thing, I think that would have definitely been a part of it. I don't think you're going to link Bronson to a chicken or whatever in the context of the movie it wouldn't make <laughs> rooster. yeah rooster would it wouldn't make much sense I mean, it's on chicken fight i don't know i've never been to one thankfully but uh the other thing that changes is the ending and actually i think the ending in the movie is probably more satisfying than in the book in the book it's really more of a standard action ending with a gunfight with uh rihanna and holland against moloch and his henchmen there's some good lines that are in the book but it's really more of a shootout um, and they get them. The whole thing with the mine is uh, it's pretty, it's pretty powerful. And I think that's actually one improvement that did get made. I did read some of the uh, reviews that were done and there were some complaints about the ending in the movie and saying it wasn't very effective that people would have liked a more traditional Bronson shoot the guy down or even Rihanna or someone is involved in, in killing him and getting revenge. But I love that scene. I thought it was really cool. The setting for it's incredible. It's that opal mine, you know, and these guys are just so their lives are just ruined and awful. And, 
and they suddenly recognized the doctor. I, it, it felt a little bit like uh, Zell in the movie um, Marathon Man when the when the Jews yeah. when the Jews on the street are recognizing him. That's Zell, Zell, and in this case, it's echoing in this opal mine, and and they come out in this kind of slow zombie-like way, and and take it to him. It's it's super sad. I think I think it was really creative. I can't see you. But I trust you can see me. You now know I have the time. <laughs> I regret what may seem excessively cruel. But please understand you forced me to do it. I will do anything necessary to get my sister back. Do you hear me? It's me you want, isn't it? Not the money. Is my life worth the child's life? A fair exchange. The child for my sister. What are you going to do? You know, if people are out there wondering, listen, listening to me talk about the book and wondering, is this a book they should get? I would definitely pick this one up. This is a Bronson's Book Club recommends uh, for sure. It's really easy to imagine him. The descriptions of him are, are it's, he's younger in the book, but it sure sounds like Bronson to me. Well, thanks for doing that, Ray. That sounds like a great book. And uh, we encourage our uh, listeners to also not only watch Bronson movies, but but read the associated literature. With that, I think we're also going to check in on what some of the other viewers of The Evil That Men Do took from the movie by cutting over to our review roundup. The review roundup. So Ray, I, I see you have your, uh, your tablets and a laptop and a desktop and your phone. Everything's open, and uh, you're looking at a lot of different uh, reviews from IMDb and uh, Amazon and all these other online postings. So what uh, what are people saying about the evil that men do? Yeah, I got I got a few, and I'm you know as is often the case, bad reviews are hard to find, right? Like most people are are really if they're looking to speak out on the internet they want to share their love for this movie so i get a couple of really good reasons and then one sort of middling review where the guy was a bit uh disappointed so let's let's start with this uh, guy named jeffrey leach back in 2003 three stars out of five the evil that men do may not be one of bronson's best roles but it certainly ranks as one of his seediest this guy says um the evil that men do is one sick puppy of a movie. <laughs> it's difficult to picture Bronson starring in such a tacky movie, but nearly all of Bronson's efforts in the eighties depict him as a vengeful entity mowing down the bad guys in increasingly sadistic ways. This film is no different, except that nearly every character, even the supposed good guys, leaves a bad taste in your mouth. So it's linking to some things that we were maybe saying in our big ideas a little bit, the ambiguous uh, nature of sort of good and evil in the movie, but to you, that that's really turning off uh, this guy a little bit. Uh, I got another one here, five out of five. This is written by number one movie fan. So, you know. What year? To, this is 2017, December 30th. So as he was reflecting back on the year, 
he, he sat down and wrote quite a lengthy review. I'm just going to pull out a, a little bit. He says, uh, Bronson had the ability to make even average films better with his presence alone. This is one Hollywood actor who can quite honestly be called legendary, not only for his sheer body of work, but also because he was always so consistent. He seemed to stay the same age for decades and never seemed to look either young or old. He almost came across as eternal, and I think that gave him a special quality. What do you think about that? Wow, that's great. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty spot on, number one movie fan. Um, and, and then I found one, I saved an interesting one, very sh- short, but I want to I hear what you think about this. Check this out. Eddie Lawn, five out of five stars, great film, part of the Bronson trilogy. And you're just like, what is it? Eddie Lawn, what's up, Eddie Lawn? What are you talking about in the United Kingdom 2018? And he goes on. This is part of the Mechanic Trilogy. It concludes the three movies of Bronson playing a hitman or mechanic. Violent City, The Mechanic, The Evil That Men Do. It's not the same name, but very similar characters in these films. And they all happen to lip read, too. That's right. They lip read. Yeah. So Eddie, like, I mean, while obviously not official, he's uh, said, what do you think of that? The, this unofficial Bronson trilogy. Very cool. Very cool. I think that's very cool. I think I, um, now Violent City is not a movie I know well. It'd be interesting to watch that through this lens. But I know the mechanic, had he lived at the end of that movie, um, you can see that Holland could have been that guy gone off to an island. You kind of mentioned that earlier. Yeah, without putting it together, I think that there's a there's a definite echo in this movie of the character that he played in in The Mechanic. Well, that's cool. So there you go. If you want to just randomly look up what other people are saying about these films, there's a lot to. I'm do. never. I never fail to be blown away by the effort that people have put into online reviews. I was going to say the writing is actually quite good. People take the time to really uh, share how much they love these, these movies and sometimes hate them. Yeah. That brings me to my rating. Uh, As you know, I try to pick out something from every movie that uh, we use as a a number system. And in this case, I'm going to use opals. So these, these poor bastards at the end of the movie are my, are, are trying to chip away at stones to find opals. So I'm going to say, how many how many opals out of 10 are we going to rate the evil that men do? And I often put you on the spot and make you do this first. I'll do this first. Oh, okay, good, good. I'm going to give the evil that men do 7 out of 10 opals. I am going to, I'm going to best you by one. I'm going to say 8 out of 10. Yeah, I was, I was surprised by this when we picked it i thought this was going to be a full-on just bronson sleaze fest a lot to laugh about in the 80s and i felt it gave me a lot more than that i watched it twice in preparation for this and i uh liked it even more the second time i'll i'll return to this movie i might fast forward through the first five minutes but um but i'll watch yeah i'll return to this one again All right, so that's a 7 out of 10 and an 8 out of 10. Obviously, we love that movie enough that uh, we we would recommend for you to go out and rent, find, download, or stream. Uh, So what's next? What do you think, Ray? Well, I think this was my pick, so I think you're up. And uh, I can't wait to hear what we're going to be jumping into. Hey, man, I think we should do 10 to Midnight. And I recently watched this one for a friend's podcast. She had me come on to talk about the Charles Bronson angle. 
gag me with a chainsaw is the name of the podcast, but I really just scratched the surface on it. There's a lot of research we could do for this one. And uh, I don't know, Ray, what do you think, man? I think that's an excellent choice. And we'll be back next time to talk all about it. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll know, we'll know all about it by the time you hear from us next. Hard times on film, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed the episodes. Uh, please tell your friends, tell your enemies. Subscribe. Leave, leave a comment. Leave a lengthy, well-written review. Tell your neighbor. See your neighbor outside. Just, you know, lean over the fence. Say, hey, you're interested in Charles Bronson like I am. You should check out the hard times. Hard times. Hard times. Hard times. Hard times. Hard times. Bastard knows about it. He knows all about it. <laughs> <laughs>